Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hello, I'm Annabelle, and I'm absolutely fine, but... I wasn't sure if I was prepared to admit this because I feel quite sort of sort of ashamed about it. But I had um, a witchy chin hair, a bristly witchy chin hair that I couldn't get. I could feel it. You know, you never really <laughs> notice them until they're waving in the breeze. You know, it's fingering it and fingering it. The sort of, you know, internationally recognised sign for chin hair when a woman's slightly worrying away at her face with a finger. And I, I got my tweezers out and I couldn't get it. So I picked up my epilator and I used it on my face. I mean, literally like, like an electric razor. I mean, I've never felt more bearded or crone-like, but it worked and let us never speak of it again. Oh my God, I don't think I can top that. How are you, Em? I'm absolutely fine, but I am, I mean, completely, as usual, staggered by the sort of the endless indignities that we are facing your epilady situation included. Yeah, we're never speaking of it again. And all the curveballs, the endless curveballs. So I am currently waiting for my second bout of COVID to pass, whilst also so that I can go to the chemist and pick up my HRT patches. I mean, you just sort of think it's just an endless kind of eroding of one's sense of self, sanity, security, sort of, you know, anything. It's like all bets are off. That's it. It's exhausting. Anyway, so that's me. As someone else who understands what it's like to feel as though you're exploding in the rush hour of life is first-time novelist Fran Littlewood. Now, she's here to talk to us today about her brilliant book, Amazing Grace Adams, about a perimenopausal woman going on a rampage. It's a raging read, out in January, and it's already been optioned by the producers of Mayor of Easttown. And like her heroine, Grace, Fran has her own tale to tell. Fran, how are you? Uh, well, feeding into your wonderful witchy hair story, actually, that we're never going to speak of again. I am absolutely fine, but I have just started taking testosterone for my uh, menopausal symptoms, and now I'm worried that I'm growing a beard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, I mean, are you growing a beard? Well, I, well, I don't, I don't. You know, we had some sunshine, didn't we, last week? And I looked in the mirror and, and thought, "Fuck, there's something rather fuzzy around my around my jawline." And in that way that these things seem to appear in your forties slash fifties, it seems like it had happened overnight. It might have been there already. It might just have been an unfortunate light. But yes. And then I did, I was reflecting on a conversation I was having with a friend of mine a few weeks earlier when she had told me, in fact, about women who had been starting to shave their jawlines. And I was listening and nodding along and saying, is that, is that a thing? And looking back, I, I then started thinking, Christ, was she trying to tell me something? <laughs> <laughs> Should I be I'm whipping out the epilady? <laughs> There's always a trade-off, isn't there? Whether it's a sort of hormone or an antidepressant, whatever you try and do to solve a problem, it just does give birth to another baby problem. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then you have to weigh up what you mind about more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's true. This is my favourite fact about, well, my least favourite fact about testosterone. Um, and this is quite niche, but I don't know if you know this, but it is only licensed for use by women in Australia. So you have to go privately to, to get it, which is, you know, a whole political can of worms in itself. But whilst I think, you know, whatever meagre research has been done shows that it can help with cognitive function. So the fuggy headedness with low mood and with exhaustion. So with kind of hideous energy levels. It is only actually licensed for in, in Australia for one particular symptom, which, of course, is is low libido. 
Libido. <laughs> Got to protect. Because it's that sort of gents, gents. Anything about your wife's menopause that might be adversely affected? <laughs> it's, like, it's like the sort of modern. It. It's a bit like the sort of modern day equivalent of the husband stitch. <laughs> oh Do you God! Remember? Yeah. I'm not even going to elaborate on that, but, you know, that was an extremely female-centric situation that was suddenly all about the male. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, as well, before that, when they say, you know, ladies, in order to induce birth, you know, have a curry and have sex. I just don't believe that that was at all. You all feel like that. (laughs) No woman in their right mind at that point feels like this. (laughs) It can only be something to do with the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. But it's totally extraordinary, you know, Low sex drive, not great, you know, but feeling like you're losing your mind. I'd say it's on balance, slightly, slightly worse. Yeah. <laughs> slightly more. And are you, sorry, I mean, as we're here, so mm. my, my HRT patch is going to be for my estrogen levels, which are on the floor, but not, that's, and I'm not doing combined. I'm just doing that. Are you, are you because testosterone- you have the marina coil, so you have progesterone in your system crucially, correct? Exactly. Thanks, Dr. Annabelle, for adding that. <laughs> uh, but that well, just because just, uh, listeners <laughs> should um, probably know you do need to take both to protect yourself against various, you know, so are you specifically mm-hmm. taking testosterone because of brain fog and and exhaustion or, or Yeah, well, no, I took it. So yes, I also have the marina coil and um I have the the gel. Okay. So yes, my estrogen. But no, I just thought I would give it I've heard people sort of say it's an absolute panacea, you know, life changing in terms of energy. Energy was my big thing, that kind of absolute exhaustion and, and all the rest. Um but yeah, it's done absolutely nothing for me so far three months in. and it can take three months to work I'm sort of about four months in absolutely nothing apart from the possible beard <laughs> but I know that isn't the case for everyone so yes I'm sticking with it for a bit longer I think that one thing that Emily and I are seeing and hearing more and more and more and it is emphatically not scientific but it is anecdotal and it never seems to end is that even though medical wisdom would generally have us believe that, you know, menopause happens at 52, and also we don't really want to entertain the concept of being, you know, sort of having crumbling skeletons and suddenly becoming unfuckable because the and menopause PR is so terrible much earlier than that. So we kick it into the long grass. But I mean, I know so many women, myself included, who felt their maddest and saddest and most insomniac and most out of control and most bewildered in their Mm -hmm, mm mid-40s. And it was very irritating to me when I read some sort of bookseller release about your great novel, which we're about to talk (laughs) about. Um, And it it said, okay, this novel's been written, the heroine is called Grace, she's menopausal and she's 50. And I just read the book, she's 45. She is 45. Even when they're reporting on your book, (laughs) they're adding five years to the age of your deranged with menopause central character. Yeah, because no one can believe it or wants to believe it. And actually, you know, our lovely medical misogyny that has, has not has barely looked into this at all. I honestly believe it. It happens a hell of a lot earlier than people talk about. I mean, I look back and I, I think I was 42 when things were happening. And yeah. I, the number of, you know, symptoms that I sort of visited the doctor with or shared, for, and it was always, like, it was never even raised, you know. The things that you, you now know are kind of key symptoms, you know, the, the difficult itch, I think, is... Um... Mm. I mean, Emily, when you went last week and they said your, your estrogen is non-existent, didn't they also say, have an antidepressant? Yes, it was fascinating, actually. Oh, my gosh. And I said to her, I said to my female doctor, who was incredibly nice, and I was really prepared for a fight, and I'd been, you know, Mm. absolutely um, educated by, like, we had Lisa Snowden on the podcast, and it's like, turn up with a list, say exactly what it is, your your sort of unshakable symptoms. And I had my blood tests in 
in October. And I finally kind of got hold of the doctor for, for, for a callback. And she said, well, you've got a few options. You know, your estrogen's on the floor. You've got the marina, so your progesterone is protected. So, you know, if you're feeling anxious and, you know, low mooded, you can have a, a, an antidepressant. And I was like, well, I don't think I, I'm not depressed. I don't need an antidepressant. But mm. I will have the, I will have the estrogen. I need estrogen, people. Surely you've just told me that. But anyway. But so, there's some statistic, and I can't remember what it is, where there's something like 52% of women who, with menopausal symptoms, are offered, if not sort of slightly almost forced, to take an antidepressant. Mm-mm-mm. And actually, yes, a friend of mine that I was talking to, it's my, it's my optician, actually, she said a friend of hers had been, and this is in the last few months, again, so post-Divina, where you feel like, you know, there's been sort of, <laughs> yeah, as I like to call it, this upsurging kind of information, is she, well, yeah, she went through her symptoms and then was asked, you know, are you suicidal? The implication being, unless you're suicidal, you won't be getting HRT and, and sent away, which just seems extraordinary and so that's pretty much you know on a on a par with your experience that's unbelievable well, it, it's as you say medical misogyny so it's you know not taking women's pain seriously mm, again mm. but so when you when you started um when you came up with the idea for amazing grace adams what made you decide to paint a character who to use a literary term is losing her fucking shit all over the place <laughs> yes i love it in fact that was my original pitch grace adams has lost everything and she's losing her shit yeah. <laughs> that didn't make it to the publishers strangely right <laughs> um yeah i mean th- th- these are all the reasons everything we've been talking about were the reasons i wanted to write the book because this kind of oh the kind of prevailing lazy narrative of kind of women in the middle of their lives being over the hill, past it. Yeah, I just wanted to write a woman in the middle of her life. I wanted to write a midlife heroine, or I probably wouldn't have put it like that at the point. I wanted to write the women around me as I knew they actually were. So I always love Jane Campion on this. She she says it bluntly and best when she talks about this notion of women over the age of 40 being invisible and unfuckable. So I just wanted to, to counter that. I wanted to write something that was honest, something that was raw, um, something that wasn't vanilla or sanitised, something that sort of talked about the women that we know, you know, our friends, my sisters, um, as a sort of complex, nuanced, interesting human beings that they that they actually are, you know. But I would say itchy vaginas and, and all, you know. I wanted to tackle these things <laughs> head on that we hadn't been talking about. And I really felt there was this feeling that if you're kind of you know, 20, 30, you're, you're allowed to sort of talk in a different way. You're allowed to write in a different way about, about women. You can, you can be a bit sweary. You can be a bit raw. You, you don't have to worry so much about yes. likability of your, of your female character. You have to worry, obviously, about any woman character being likable and being facetious. But it felt like there was, a, there was a gap and this wasn't, this is not how the women around us are. So, yes, I kind of wanted to, to redress that that balance you know but I love it at the beginning of the book you're sort of thinking oh dear oh dear she's having a tricky time and then she she sort of morphs <laughs> into Rambo and and it's sort of like uh, you know crossed with the Hulk it's like oh you know, don't fuck with her like oh god who, who's going to cross her path next and what is she going to do because she's been pushed to the very edge I mean we discover two-thirds of the way through the book that it you know that there's a whole wallpaper of trauma that isn't about hormones mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. perhaps the experience of perimenopause is allowing this truth to you know to surge from her 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. A lot of people talk about this, don't know, this kind of stage of life as being this sort of breaking apart to, to put yourself back together and trying to kind of look for the, the positives in it, which I think there are some positives. I kind of starting to, I'm interested in exploring at the moment, this sort of that it's something of a return to self. There was a sort of pre-12 me who I feel like was the authentic me, the, the essence of who I really was. And then, you know, you have your teenage years and beyond where the self-consciousness crowds in and societal expectation, um, all of this stuff putting us in our box and telling us who we should be. And actually, I sort of start to think, you know, are these years through our 40s when we just get a bit more fuck it, not all of the time, but some of the time, do we start to kind of throw off the shekels of everything that we've accrued, the boxes we've been put in? And do we, is there a sort of return to self, this is my hope, you know, maybe 55, that you kind of come back to the person that you actually really are in, in essence. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Simone de Beauvoir talked about it being the time when you coincide with yourself, which is sort of the mm. same thing. Mm-mm. And also, I suppose there's some logic in that, which is that, first of all, you're, you're, not, you're no longer, uh, you know, hopefully, obsessed with pleasing men, which I think does, or for our generation, did hit at puberty and Mm-mm. stuck around. And also, I read the other day, there's this idea that you you leave the, the compassionate years. So it means that basically, as you're no longer programmed, I suppose, to listen out for a crying, for a crying baby, you just you know, give fewer fucks, or at least you're more careful where you put them. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it's true, the careful where you put them. Because I would love to say, and it's like kind of talking about this book, and you kind of want to say grace is completely kick ass and it's as you know it's as simple as that and it's it's linear and it's one way but of course yes I think you start you know terrible people pleasing we've all been kind of conditioned to be people pleasers as girls and, and women and I think yeah you would love to feel you've you've thrown off all of that but actually I think you're right it's kind of in certain situations where you care less you know people who treat you badly or you know a stranger in the street whatever it is that's kind of the kind of people that grace encounters yes i think it's where as you say where you put it but actually you know certainly in my case still sort of giving too many fucks i think in in other areas that you would you know that are still quite straight jacketing well i think what's interesting as well is the theme of your book you know she when she sort of presses the fuck it button and she sort of (laughs) leaves her car walks out she doesn't walk away from her life she walks towards her life well it's a book about love isn't it exactly Mm, mm. yes and i think that's important because i think that again a lot of this narrative of kind of you know the unnuanced narrative around us and women in their 40s, 50s is, is like, exactly, oh, I don't give a fuck anymore, you know, and I, I walked away. And actually, I think that's not completely exactly like we said, it's not true. Mm-hmm. What we do is we need to come back to what is important to us and what hasn't distract, you know, because we've been so distracted by the millions of things that we think that we're supposed to do and that we're, that's been expected of us. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is a lovely moment when you realise that, you know, yes, there's going to be some satisfying kind of falling down kind of moments. But at the same time, she is trying to repair and she is trying to, you know, nurture. And that that isn't, we're not, we don't have to abandon that element of ourselves yeah no absolutely I mean I I think I I certainly use I love this kind of you know perimenopausal woman as action hero I kind of love the sort of improbable idea of 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 doing that the kind of the clash of it and I really wanted to put some 
dark humour around it, because I think you can say a hell of a lot more if you're doing it with some humour. You can kind of push things further and you can make things more palatable. But yes, as you say, that's kind of a jumping off point into kind of one of the three narrative strands of the book. And, you know, it, it meant that I could kind of veer into the absurd of it, which was very fun to do and also kind of mine some humour. But yes, it was also as a counter to um, the much more kind of emotional side of the book. Um, I didn't want to be drowning in that emotion. I wanted to find something that, that, that was off, offsetting that. But yes, as you say, it's all about the kind of the nuance and the complexities and yeah trying to get all of that that you know that rich rich um drama the desire doubt everything that kind of fill, fills our lives trying to get all of it across yeah I mean there's I think you know there, there's a there's a perception certainly you know I would have assumed in my 20s that women in their 40s and 50s have experienced a sort of numbing of emotion mm. and that isn't what happens I mean you know your book um, really illustrates very clearly how hard it is this idea that you're turning towards yourself towards life that you know that you're kind of choosing love it's a battle to do that at a time when you may or may not have school-aged children you may or may not have a job that you really need and mm -hmm. really have to fight to stay visible within you may or may not have vicious perimenopausal symptoms a relationship that's bad or no relationship or just a relationship that requires the oxygen that relationships require aging parents you know the rush hour of life as we say and yeah, yet yeah, within yeah. all that somehow you're galvanized to try and find yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I mean, I, I absolutely wanted to write the book with hope in it. There is hope in the, in this in this narrative. It's it's ultimately it's, it's a redemptive story. And I do think, yeah, it is a time of, as you say, these ridiculous pressures. You know, squeezed in the middle of you know the head fuckery of teenage children if you have them, and your aging parents, and then being held to a higher standard um, than men in absolutely everything. The kind of huge double standard. So in Grace's case, she's. 45 but she's supposed to look 25 you know you're meant to be the perfect wife mother daughter friend your house is supposed to be immaculate all of that stuff um and then on top of that actually um this sort of crisis of violence against women and girls that I wanted to I didn't see how I could write actually a day in the life of a woman without kind of exploring that from the microaggressions right up to you know sexual harassment and, and beyond. So, yeah, huge, huge pressures, and particularly, you know, for all women and girls, but I think, yeah, obviously, particularly um, at this time of life. But I think it is. I think there's a kind of a, t a time of reckoning as well, which I always try to show sort of metaphorically in the book on this day that Grace, such as she walks across London, she abandons her car, and she, she walks away, and she's walking back to her, to her family, to her estranged daughter, to the husband. She, she's split And from. smashing any shit that gets in yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's going to get there no matter what it takes. So it's, yeah, as you say, demonstrating some fierce mother love and also kind of exploring the love in, in the relationship with her husband. Her motivation comes from a, from a, from a good place, from this place kind of deep-rooted, this, this place of kind of huge, huge love. But yeah, she, she walks across London on this kind of the hottest day of the year and yeah, it's a day of... A day of Kind reckoning. of burning mm. physically out externally and internally. <laughs> yeah, like she's absolutely. basically on fire. Yeah, I think that's yeah. practically the opening line of the book, isn't yeah. it? That she's yeah, burning. Yeah, the the sun is. is beating down on her, and the heat is radiating, radiating oh. out of her. And, 
you know, it's all about to happen. And I love the fact that as she sort of, you know, she's practically swinging through the trees of, you know, the, the sort of Amazon jungle with a machine gun and she negotiates <laughs> London on this very hot day whilst dealing with herself. There are so many characters who just look at her and kind of go, what the fuck? Or I'm worried about you. What the fuck? And I certainly, when I'm having a you know particularly mad day, get a flavour of someone, whether it's someone I know or don't know or someone I've just, you know, given the finger to in the car because I've had some, you know, road rage, yeah, looking yeah, and wrong. going, oh God, what's, you know, what's wrong with her? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually interesting, there is also some compassion in the book. So some of the characters that, who she meets, she meets sort of, I think, in the middle of the book, this, I like to call her the, the fairy godmother character, who is a woman who is a little bit older, I mean, she's sort of in her 60s, who exactly that looks at Grace and, and sees that this is this is a woman with some with some stuff on her plate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a woman who's walked the path, and I think that's, Interesting in terms of, you know, what Annabelle and I have always sought, you know, wanted to do and what you're doing with the book as well is kind of, you know, write what's coming for people mm. and, and not this conspiracy of silence where the wall comes down at kind of, you know, 40 or 45, whenever. And, you know, women didn't talk about how they felt, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. didn't talk about the perimenopause for, for fear of exactly the kind of being labelled or tarred with kind I of love angry, the fact that hot... whenever we talk about we have to put peri, because it, it, it just makes it a little <laughs> bit more palatable, doesn't it? <laughs> but actually, you know, it's really, yes, it doesn't it, though. And I'm sort of at that kind of, I now have to go perimenopause slash menopause. But actually, I've, I specifically made Grace perimenopause, not least because she was... 45 but also because well it's, it seems extraordinary to think of it now but when I was writing it I think most people couldn't have defined what perimenopause actually was it was the word was not in use I think still when you type it in when you predicted you know it gets underlined in in red on your phone the phone can't spell it the computer can't spell it but yes I think yeah it, it, felt, it felt important to make it the perimenopause which yes was something we're sort that of absolutely... able to deal with perimenopause but you know my doctor <laughs> said it goes on for 10 years doesn't mean you're infertile, doesn't mean, you know, any of those, you know, terrible sort of doom-laden predictions that we have about actual menopause. Perimenopause, you know, can start when everything is still, you know, firing on many cylinders. It's just Mm. the beginnings of the change. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) But also, I don't think we should, you know, we've got, you know, it's an amazing time as well, isn't it? Mm, mm, mm. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is what I do. You know, I look at my, I've got three teenage daughters, so they're 13, 15 and 18 now. And I look at what they're going through. You know, you kind of, you could wish, you would not wish yourself back there, you know, Yes, we, this kind of, the wonderful sort of independence that you have. Now, so many women actually of this age, I know there seems to be something of a, a renaissance. Lots of women are kind of quitting their jobs or moving in new directions, setting up new businesses. You know, there, there's, yeah, there's an awe. I know that people have sort of, you know, the minute you start talking about this, people trying to sort of shut it down as this is terrifying and negative and you're frightening younger women. And it's not it's just about having open dialogue and as you say there are as many positives as there are negatives you know it's only terrifying and frightening if you don't have any information and you yeah. are covered in shame and you have no way to talk about it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. but that you, that's true of so many things in life isn't it yeah there's that interesting i love those memes that are you know don't show me the list of 30 under 30 kind of achievers don't show me 25 year old personal trainers bring me like 55 year old personal trainers whose body i envy <laughs> slash you know, the 70-year-old woman who finally got published after kind of years of trying or whatever. But, you know, the idea, again, I think, oddly, I think, 
those 30 under 30 lists are to put pressure on young people to conform and to keep mm. going and to kind of, you know, believe in this ladder of life that if you, you know, do well at school, et cetera, et cetera, you know, you will get to this point where you've kind of got where you want your career. But actually what we all know now is that you can pivot, right? Pivot is great. You yeah. can like leave your car and you can go off and you can set up, a, you know, Annabelle and I, a podcast, whatever it is, you know, you've mm-hmm. written a book. Like this is this is what we can do. We can do anything that we want if we mm. want to do it. But talking about teenagers, God, you're good at how condescending and sneering (laughs) and disgusted and know-it-all they can be. I'm sure not at all based on your own delightful children. Absolutely not, my perfect, gorgeous children. No, I just, you know, it really struck me when I was writing it. Well, this kind of the terrible timing of it, the clash of these hormones that, you know, they're sort of your teenager's brain is being rewired at the same time. Actually, a similar thing is, is happening to us. And... I kind of, I, my theory on this is that this clash didn't used to happen because I think we would, by the time our, our mothers had us when they were younger, so by the time they were hitting perimenopause, menopause, I think we probably would have left home or, or been on our, our way out. This is my theory anyway, but now we've sort of got this, you know, horribly ironic clash of, of hormones <laughs> where I don't know, you know, I sort of meet, I have, you know, I'm, maybe I'm improving learning, but have met the sort of teenage horror with some equally reverting to my teenage self in my less than perfect mothering response. I feel like, you know, as they leave the room, if you've just about held it together and you sort of flip the bird as the, the, the door closes behind, behind them. Standard, I know, I was like, is this joint pain from, from perimenopause or is it from just permanently <laughs> flipping my children off as they walk out of that room <laughs> because they're so rude it's impossible to tell <laughs> but yeah but there was also something I don't know about you I, f- I very much found it something that I found myself I thought it's an accidental theme that I started investigating in the book because again much like the perimenopause something that I felt happened much earlier with me was this kind of feeling that the, the grief of losing your children to adulthood and I felt we'd all talk you know everyone talks about empty nest syndrome um, but it seems to me to be happening a lot earlier than I expected it to happen so this sort of 14 15 16 and you know that it's a necessary growing away but yes it happened a lot earlier than I was expecting suddenly your kind of child becomes a, a stranger in, in many senses and you just can't access them um, and that's very difficult when you've had this sort of being who has been sort of worshipful and, and devoted up, up until that point it does kind of it is something that can sort of shake your sense of self and I think when you're going through this this the changes anyway the constant questioning are you doing things right and then exactly they sort of look at you as their sort of utmost condescensions though you're the most and just proves that you can't do anything right (laughs) yes part of you sort of thinking god are they right yeah (laughs) but also you know as we're searching for our identity our sense of identity Mm. you know as discussed when when a relationship that you kind of you know feel on quite safe ground with and this happens in all of our friendships or relationships at this point I think as well and you turn around you go actually I don't even know if this is exactly this is not what I expected and it's Mm -hmm. such a shock isn't it it's a real shock yeah, 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 yeah. I think I, Nora Ephron writes brilliantly on this, doesn't she? She said, you know, this is kind of quite revelatory, this thing of, like, the teenage years. Um, it, it's not about the children moving away from you. It's, it happens so that you can kind of move away from your children. But, I, but I'm interested you say that about friendships as well, because I think it is that sort of, that moment in time where some of those sort of potentially toxic friendships, I think actually 
in many ways, maybe you have more kind of greater strength or, or maybe you're just too bloody tired, really yeah. quite tired, that if this is something that I'm not getting anything out of. But it's interesting, I think, just thinking about it, hearing you say that, that I suppose our mid-40s coincided with the pandemic. So there was a natural loosening of ties. Mm. And maybe it's there's a reason why a lot of those ties haven't been, you know, reformed or retightened. Um, and maybe it is partly because you just sort of think oh, either I don't have the energy or I have to conserve the energy I do have or just no. Yeah, just yeah, no more really, yes. terrorism in my <laughs> emotional life. It's rewritten the rule book. That's really interesting, actually, because I think, yes, you're looking at um, yeah, how the pandemic has affected, well, I've certainly thought about it a lot in terms of my kids. Yes, you're right. If you think about it more in terms of yeah, ourselves and, and those changes, yeah. I mean, certainly your your character, you know, her friendships are not really in play. This is very much about her family mm. and the and the extensions that happen through, you know, her sister's wife or her children's educators, crucially, because there is there are abuse problems going on at school. Um, but actually, she, she, she it's not like she just calls her best friend and goes, hi, can you come and pick me up? I'm having a bad day. Yeah, you know, yeah, she, yeah. you know, she, she's it's a bit like, you, you know, you're born alone and you die alone. There she is. <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think an awful lot of it is internalized. Speaking for, for myself, I did something different for different people and depending on your friendships. Um, but, yes, yeah, certainly, I mean, one of the reasons, actually, that I, I wanted to write in, in the kind of very head-on way I wrote about, about the perimenopausal symptoms was because I'd, when I was thinking about going on HRT, I'd mentioned to a couple of, um, separately to a couple of close friends, I'm thinking about going on HRT, and both of them said to me, oh, yes, I, I'm already on it. And I felt like, God, surely that should have been more of a headline conversation. So maybe there is a sense that, you know, we are kind of on our own a bit, with it, with this kind of personal reckoning. But also, it's interesting you said that, because I, I wrote the book during lockdown. So actually, if it feels that kind of very kind of high-pressure, hothouse atmosphere, so yes, in the house with two of them, a teenager at the time, three kids, husband in the other room, the neighbours who weren't living there at the time, rebuilding their house from, from the ground up, complete with pneumatic drilling. You know, it was quite a, a cathartic ride. I had a bit of a... Bit of a cry for help <laughs> did you experience any of the any of these feelings of rage and like you might just do something um, really mad yeah, yeah, yeah over the kind of tiniest thing you know so there's I, mean, I would love to say you know she does she abandons the car and she walk in gridlock traffic at the beginning of the book and she walks away and I sort of yes I wish I'd had a, had a moment like that but I have a show I'd say she is more she's my fantasy self grace she does she goes she rips up the social contract she goes out and she says and does all the things that you know you'd love to you'd love to do but it is it's the it's the little things it's the microaggressions. so there's a scene in the book and um these are things that i think some people are finding hashtag relatable which i will say i feel like i've been in this this situation numerous times and grace is queuing in a chemist she gets to the back of the queue and the chemist says boiling hot day she's in there there's air con so it's all a bit of a relief and a woman comes in and stations herself in the queue behind her and sort of is edging forward and yeah. edging forward, reaches to the shelf, puts, takes something off, looks at it, puts it back, moves forward a little bit more, is getting her shoulder in front. And Grace is standing in this furious, saying nothing, but furious, mounting fury. Until by the end of this scene, which sort of build great drama of, of you know, I will, she will not let this woman get in front of her and get served first if it's the last thing <laughs> she does. <laughs> 
And I have, yes, absolutely, more than once been sort of... But of course, you, you, never, you never say anything, but you've got your kind of sharp elbows out trying to stave people off. I know it's that hyper-awareness and vigilance of you're meant to be behind me, but you're pulling up level. Yeah, yeah, well, I know you what you're going to try and do. <laughs> and then you're... And, and it's quite undignified. There's a sort of jostle. Isn't but it, it takes over your badly. entire being. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you've been there. It's not just me. <laughs> I mean, I I, th- I think we've all been there and even little things where, you know, she tries to talk to a child in the street and the child shakes she's insane and then a concerned mother whisks the child away but don't talk to the mad lady and it's just like, oh, you know, it just it just never stops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have to say there was a huge catharsis in, in writing this. I kept, I don't know, th- um, Where'd You Go Bernadette, which is another sort of, she's a brilliant midlife character who kind of is a sort of veers into the absurd, which I kept on my desk, which kind of enabled me to move into that area. But it really was that sort of writing the things that you would love to do, kind of exploding these situations. There's another chapter with the, the sort of school mum who humble brags at her. And again, you know, you have to sit and endure those sort of, my child is, is brilliant conversations. And you don't say anything. You never say anything. But Grace, Grace does. She, she rises up, you know. She's, she's mad as hell and she's not yes. taking it anymore. Yes, my child <laughs> is brilliant, but I'm a bit worried about yours. Yes. yes. <laughs> Said with love. Yes. No judgment here. Yes. I have a suggestion. Oh, my God. Go yeah. away with your suggestions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, tolerable, but it is so funny and, um, and, 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 and such an achievement. And I think it will be taken in the spirit it was intended, which is both, you know, serious and, and funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have tried to sort of sneak in some socio-political uh, stuff. And as I say, you know, I couldn't, I felt I couldn't write this day in the life of a woman without um, looking at um, violence against women and girls. So I have sort of tackled that, but also this kind of backdrop to our daily lives, you know, the poverty. And I mean, this was, you know, cost of living crisis now. This was written kind of whatever it was two years ago. And I remember sort of saying to my kids, this whole sort of awful lurch to the right, you know, there's going to be a corrective, don't worry. You know, at a point a corrective will come. And now I'm sitting here sort of talking about this book in which I tried to sort of sneak in, you know, some of this sort of social commentary yeah, unbelievable that things have got so much worse than, than they were then. But the corrective must be coming. It must be coming. <laughs> if not HRT. For everyone. Yes, <laughs> yes. HRT for all. <laughs> <laughs> the rallying Free, cry. free on the NHS. <laughs> um, oh, Fran, thank you so much for coming um, to talk to us. And, 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 and congratulations on the amazing oh, Grace thank Adams. Thank you so much. The thank amazing, amazing Grace Adams. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and I'm assuming that your next book will be just as sort of inflammatory and you'll come back and talk about that. <laughs> oh, I do hope so. Once I've written it, which should be done way past my deadline. <laughs> oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Middle. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe.